Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat to authors about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. Today, I'm very excited to speak to someone right across the other side of the world, D.V. Bishop, author of the Cesare Aldo Mysteries set in the Renaissance of Florence, published by Pan Macmillan. An award-winning screenwriter and TV dramatist, his love for the city of Florence and the Renaissance period meant that there could only be one setting for this crime fiction debut. City of Vengeance won the pitch perfect competition at the bloody Scotland Crime Fiction Festival in 2018 and DV Bishop was awarded a Robert Lewis Stevenson Fellowship by the Scottish Book Trust while writing the novel. That is all very impressive. Welcome DV Bishop. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> now I love to ask when people come from interesting places what interesting place do you beam in through the internet today? Uh, I am beaming in from uh, a small town or large village ironically entitled Bigger Ooh. but that's B-I-G-G-A-R not E-R Bigger uh, which is about 30 miles southwest of Edinburgh in Scotland wow. and about 40 miles southeast of Glasgow. We're like the bottom of an inverted pyramid. Fantastic. About, but countryside. So, yeah, so it's it's the countryside of what's known as sort of the borders of Scotland. Oh, I love that. Well, tell me, tell me the what accent, the weather's you can like. Tell I'm not actually Scottish. <laughs> we can tell that, but it's interesting that we are beaming in from Scotland anyway. What's the weather like? Uh, today, it's uh, it was sunny five minutes ago, uh, much like Melbourne. We get through the four seasons in one day. Um, and it's uh, so it's now overcast mm -hmm. and threatening rain. We had snow last week. Ooh. This is meant to be spring. It's like the middle to the back end of spring. <laughs> and we were sub-zero last week. Wow. And snowing 
I went out for a run Monday last week and it was fine. And then it was raining and then it was hailing and wow. then it was snowing. That's and that crazy. was in the space of like half an hour. So, so if you yeah. go out for the day, you need to take the big jacket, the light jacket, the rain jacket. What else? Snow boots. There's a lot of layering that goes on. A lot of on. layers. <laughs> a lot of layers. <laughs> got, to be, got to be ready for anything. I spend most of my time, I walk out and I, I literally, I now just, I look at the weather app and go, yeah, right. And then I just stand out, step outside and go. And then I look at the trees in the distance to assess how much wind there is. Mm, and then I'm figuring out the weight of coat. And then I'll get round and then I'll be walking up the hill and then I'll be too hot. And then I'm hitching up the back of my coat to try and expose the small. Oh, it's, it's very wow. elaborate. It is. It is. And look, in spring in Sydney, um, we're still swimming in the pool. Sometimes we're going to the beach and you literally just chuck your thongs on and a dress, if you're me, and just head out the door. Actually, I also take a hat. So that's yeah, well, us here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I was brought up on the whole slip, slop, slap. So yes. people in Scotland stare at me because I'll just be like, oh, it's quite sunny. I'll put some sunscreen on. And they're like, <laughs> sorry, it, it's, it's a, an entire childhood of training. I cannot resist reaching right? for the fact. It is. I can't even go outside without a hat. I'm so paranoid. So, yeah, anyway, yeah. interesting. I love it when we can do this beam right across the world. What time is it for you? Uh, it's uh, just gone 10 o'clock in the morning. Oh, so a civilised time for us both. It's 7pm yeah, here, so yeah. very civilised. Excellent. All right, we should actually talk about your book, but I just find oh, yeah. it so interesting when people come from, you know, really interesting places from across the world, and I love how we can do this and the Wi-Fi, you know, is is really good so that's amazing so before we get started can you give us an elevator pitch to this incredible novel cool okay so uh city of vengeance is set in renaissance florence in the winter of 1536 and it introduces uh, a character called cesare aldo who is a law enforcer for the most feared criminal court in the city uh, he investigates the murder of a Jewish moneylender, but in doing so, he uncovers a conspiracy to overthrow Duke Alessandro de' Medici, who's the ruler of the city of Florence at this period in history. Um, and at the same time, one of his uh, rivals within the court is uh, doing a secret investigation into Aldo himself, because they really don't get on. Uh, and so Aldo's challenge is he's got four days to try and solve the murder of the moneylender, but at the same time, He's trying to prevent this conspiracy to overthrow the Duke, which will put the entire city in peril. But can he do all of that before his own secrets destroy him? Florence was like the sort of the cradle of the Renaissance. Mm. It's where that was the 14th, you know, was it the 14th century? Yeah, sort of yeah, the Renaissance sort of kicks in mid 15th century mm -hmm. in my okay. books in the 16th century. So okay. that's the point where they sort of they rediscovered uh, the classics of literature from the Greeks and the Romans and they started, and then they revived architecture from that period and found the ways instead of just like thatched huts and life like that, they went, no, let's have nicer buildings. And they started having <laughs> money and rich people started having disposable income mm -hmm. and therefore they started. But I think the what really set the Renaissance off was the fact that rich people had disposable income and became patrons of the arts. Mm -hmm. So they paid writers to write, they paid artists to do sculptures and frescoes and paintings. They paid architects to do these incredible buildings. And the joy of Florence is even when you visit Florence today, buildings from 500 years ago were still standing and in great condition. The Duomo with the incredible, you know, 
uh, above the uh, the cathedral is you know that's from like the 13th century from memory so you know we've built 800 year old buildings still in perfect neck now um and well maintained so it's one of those cities you can go into and you can walk around and you can imagine yourself back into history very easily it's not a place that's been you know leveled and rebuilt and leveled and rebuilt and it survived uh florence was quite lucky they the Germans, when they were retreating in the Second World War, blew up most of the bridges, but they left the Ponte Vecchio, which is the most famous bridge, because um, the German commander was like, nah, that's all right. We'll leave that one. That's, 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 <laughs> no. Also, you can't get a tank over the Ponte Vecchio. So it's not like it was a great access route mm-hmm. from the Allies. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. Um, so it was, uh, I've always had a fascination with the, the period. And then I picked up this uh, academic monograph, which talked about the criminal justice system in Florence in this Mm. period and how actually it was roughly comparable to a modern police force. And I read that and light bulb goes off and I went, I could do a police procedural of a sort, but I could set it in, you know, Renaissance Florence because you think of Florence and the Renaissance and you think of art and architecture and all these amazing things, but it's also the place that gives us, you know, the Prince by Machiavelli and the Borgias and backstabbing and basically all modern politics owes an awful lot to you know the practices that they got away with and which Machiavelli turned into a whole book about how to use and manipulate and maintain power wow. which basically we're still using today um <laughs> so it's this this juxtaposition of sort of evil and uh, manipulation and backstabbing and beauty at the same time Mm. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. And I am really fascinated with those kind of, you know, historical periods as well. And I'm wondering, you know, obviously you've done a lot of research. What was it that surprised you about your research? You know, you said you found similarities with the police force, but when you went back into research, what did you think? Wow. What's this about? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, well, they had all sorts of strange things with the police force. So the, the sort of criminal justice system they had, um, so they had lawyers, they had magistrates, they had trials, they had interviews, uh, they had, you know, suspects and all the rest. But equally, if they wanted to get you to confess to something or if you were being a hostile witness, they would just torture you for a bit uh, in order to get the answers they wanted. Um, and if you were an uncooperative prisoner, then they would just send in somebody to uh, strangle you in your cell. You would just be executed. But the good news is they they would only do it if there was a priest present to give you the last rites. So it was fine to execute people as long as, you know, they were going to heaven anyway. So A little bit of like, moral ambiguity there. but um, Yeah, yeah, that seemed a little slightly odd as a choice, but, you know, <laughs> who am I to judge? Um, uh, yeah, and the other thing was... That, so they had uh, they had informants, they had bribes, they had all the things that you think of in sort of you know crime uh, crime narratives these days. But equally, they had a system whereby if you wanted to uh, denounce somebody, accuse somebody of a crime, they just had boxes that you could um, you could have written your accusation and drop it anonymously into a box, and then wow. that person would be investigated for oh, whatever you accused them of. So Don't basically, the, the sort of the Renaissance Renaissance equivalent of a tip line. Interesting. Yeah. The police hotline. Interesting and terrifying. I was talking to someone the other day too about, you know, uh, particularly when women were perceived as hysterical or mad, someone could just say they were hysterical and mad and they would be institutionalized. Like that is terrifying stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sort of the period I'm writing about, uh, I think I read the stat of something like one in one in 10 women were in convents at this point in history in Florence 
because it was it was uh you know if you didn't have enough money for the dowry to marry off all your mm-hmm. daughters then once you got past the good looking one anybody else uh, who was like troublesome or not deemed to be, you know, aesthetically pleasing, mm. just got shipped off to the convent and wow. kept there instead because it was cheaper to have them in a convent. Um, and an awful lot, once you got sort of in a certain level in society where you had some money, then if you were a, a, a daughter, then basically the only time you got to leave the house was you were chaperoned and probably to go to church. And then you got married off often and your husband would be 20 years older than you and you'd be like 15 all right off you go Mm. uh produce some ears now please um whereas if you were sort of the equivalent of what we call working class now then you actually got to walk the streets but you know middle class and above you your your delicate feet never touch the cobbles so interesting It's, it's so interesting particularly when you talk about you know women and women's freedom i find that very interesting and you know very grateful that we're not back there, <laughs> really. Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, the, I've been writing the the next book in this series, which is coming out in um, 2022, um, and that's largely set in a convent. Okay. Um, so it's, yeah, it's uh, the setup of the book is that somebody opens a door to the scriptorium where they used to illuminate manuscripts, the nuns would, and there's a dead naked guy on the floor of the scriptorium uh, with 27 stab wounds and he's covered in blood and they're like you really shouldn't be here I don't mm. um, and so the investigation begins but it was I mean I love research uh, addicted to research but it was like so I read all these accounts of the period from written by nuns because uh, they all kept histories of the convent but a convent often was a place where women had a lot of agency and autonomy mm-hmm. because they got to set their own rules that everything was discussed and debated in the chapter house. Decisions were made on that basis. Um, and they had control and ownership of their own money and what they could do and what they did with the finances. So actually, I mean, women often only had two choices in this period. Uh, once you were of a certain social class, you either it was like the marriage bed or the veil. Those mm-hmm. are your two choices. Um, so, yeah, so a lot. So convents actually, you know, the well the ones that were well run and sort of, you know, looked after the, the, the women within them were a refuge for a lot of women at that period in history. It's, it's really interesting because that was my next question because I, I thought, you know, a convent being run by women, you would have more agency. So, you mm-hmm. know, if yeah, I was absolutely. back then, I would choose the veil for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is it. I mean, because there you could go off and you could, uh, you would get an education from a young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of convents, they, 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 wrote their own plays, they wrote their own stories, they created their own music, they studied art. I mean, you know, a lot of praying and getting up at five in the morning to pray in the dark of winter. But on the plus side, yeah, you you had autonomy over your body and what you did. And, mm. you know, that's something that a lot of women today don't have. So by comparison, yeah, pluses and minuses. Very interesting. I'm looking forward to the next one now if it's set in the convent. We can have lots of oh, interesting yeah. things. And when you said um, that you really get lost in the research, I wanted to ask you, with your writing process, do you do all the research first? Do you start writing first or do you kind of meld them together? I try and do as much, front load as much as the research as I can. Um, so for City of Vengeance, I mean, that was, I spent, I think, 20 years not writing the book doing research off and on and writing other things in the meantime until I finally got to the point where I went, okay, you, you, it's like, you know, if you'll pardon the crudity, get off the pot or piss. You eventually reach a point where you just have to put up or shut up. So I thought, I'm going to have to start writing this eventually. I can't keep researching because I will never know everything. 
So therefore, I'm just going to have to tell the story and then discover things as I go along. So I tried to do as much of the research as I could for the first one. Um, and then, of course, as I was writing it, because I wrote it over like an 18-month period, uh, I discovered things as I was doing, continuing my research and writing. And I was discovering things and going, oh, all right, I'm going to have to go back and rewrite and fix this. And no, this didn't exist. Oh, and this character, she was in the room directly above the murder I did in, in actual history. So I'm going to have to put her into the building and that's going to be a whole thing. So I had to do a lot of rewriting as I discovered things. And even now I keep discovering things. I just got this book the other day, which is a Florentine diary from 1450 to 1560. Wow. And then continued by an anonymous writer. And uh, I've looked in that and started reading that and went, oh God, the magistrates weren't in this building yet. Right, fine. That's going to need fixing when it come, book two comes back to edit. <laughs> Fascinating. So you're always discovering new stuff. Yeah, and um, you can't possibly know it all, like you said. I mean, no. if you don't live in that period, you know, you're always going to be finding new things out. But, you know, I think 20 years of research, I think, you know, I think you've done it. I think you, you've, you're ready to write the book. <laughs> you would hope. Um, yeah, yeah. And then for the second one, which is uh, with the convent and all the nuns, Fortunately, because it was uh, the, the first one was so large and it went in so many directions, so it's not just Florence. They also end up going to Bologna and then heading towards Venice, although they don't get to Venice. Um, uh, so it was there was and it covered the entire city and all stratas of society. Whereas the second one, because it's mostly confined to the convent, that made my life research a lot easier. It was feasible. It was more contained. It was not quite a locked room mystery, but it was more sort of in the style. So it was actually a lot easier. I could just focus on the convent mm -hmm. and do the research for that. So I went through, I don't know, about a dozen books. And then I made this dossier of all the notes I needed to know what time they got up, what they were, what they ate, et cetera, et cetera, wow. and did all that in advance. So then I could just write the book and I just had my little dossier and what are they doing now? What time is it? Uh, how do they actually illuminate manuscripts? What is rabbit glue used for? The random facts that you accumulate that what, never what is, it what is rabbit glue used for uh it's mostly it's for book binding oh. and also for like i use rabbit glue to uh help when you're putting like gold and and other colorings uh, oh. when they use like a uh, blue powder in order to to illuminate parts of the manuscript um so it's one of the things that they use to fix things is rabbit glue which is in these big blocks it's really weird presumably yeah. they just boiled rabbits and turn them into glue yeah that is bizarre and interesting yeah. but very resourceful I think you know when you go back into those periods of time and you know they were trying to create medicines and all that, all those sort of potions and things like it's very interesting what they came up with I find yeah that, I mean it's one of the things I haven't really dug into yet is the system of medicine because that's another whole yeah. problem uh, that's going to be quite tricksy um, one thing I did discover is uh, the if you were Jewish in this period in history, there are very few jobs you're allowed to have. Mm -hmm. So you could be a, a money lender, you could be in the rag trade, so you could do uh, cloths and dyeing, uh, or a doctor and a musician. But it was quite fashionable in this period in, in Florentine uh, history to have a Jewish physician because they had a different system of medicine than your standard doctors. It wasn't all just the four humours and all these weird sorts of beliefs they had about how you fixed people in the good old days. It's a very strange um, range of occupations, though, isn't it? You know, doctor, moneylender, musician. Like, it's very, it's very and, strange. And yeah, and fashion is very kind of strange combination of jobs, isn't it? It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
Yeah, well, I mean, the moneylender is because it was forbidden by uh, the Christian faith to usury was was a sin to, to be money money changing was deemed to be a sin. So it was essential for the functioning of, of Florence, which was a business city, basically. It ran on business. A lot of other places in, in what we now call Italy were papal cities or papal city states. So the church ran everything. Florence, it was about banking and money and business and the guilds and the merchants. So the emphasis was very different. So they needed Jews for the money. Uh, as crude as that sound, that was just the reality of history at that point in time. So, yeah. And then they were good at medicine. Some of them were good musicians. So it varied from place to place. But, yeah. Now, I want to talk to you about uh, great first lines. And I found, you know, the your book had a great first line. And it says, Cesare Aldo took no pleasure from killing, but sometimes it was necessary. Now, I want to ask you, when you start writing your books, do you labour over that first line? Does it just come to you? Is it something that you go back to later? How important is a first line to you? Because I feel like it sets the whole book up. It sets the character up and it gives just this one line and it already gives you so many, um, you know, questions that you want answered. You know, is this a good guy? Is this a bad guy? Is, you know, obviously there's some moral ambiguity to it and you want to know who is killing and why. So is this, am I overthinking this or is this is this how you write your first lines? Uh, no, no, no. You're, you're describing my mental process um, <laughs> in every sense of the word. Um, is, uh, I, I mean, I labour so hard at first lines and generally I'm terrible at them. Like well, before does it I appear wrote, so? <laughs> well, yeah, this is a one-off, trust me. Um, I, I, like, I've written a load of uh, tie-in novels in the past, licensed tie-ins. I've written Doctor Who novels and Judge Dredd and I did a Nightmare on Elm Street novel, all sorts oh, of random things. I used to love years. Nightmare on Elm Street. I grew up with Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, you and me both. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I, I actually, I really love writing my Nightmare on Elm Street novel. I have to say that was like, Teenage boy, Dick. Oh, I'm um, going to have to get my hands on one of those, I think, and go right, back well, to my Freddy Krueger So you're going to pay a pretty penny for that <laughs> one. It's never been reprinted. Sorry about that. I don't have any points anymore because they gave for so much. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's um, – and I've – so I've written a load of stuff and I've re- always struggled with the opening line because, like you say, the first line, if, if possible, you want it to set the tone. You want it to ask a question. You want it to set up the mystery. It's it it can do so much for you potentially. It can you know it can be on the back of the book. It can do a lot of the hard heavy lifting for you. And so uh, when I was writing this, I was because I've always struggled. I mean, I wrote a trilogy of novels based on a character from the 2008 comic, which I used to edit. And for those, I just went, I'm terrible at first lines. I know. I'm just going to nick first lines from Ian Fleming's James Bond books, <laughs> which I did. Um, but it's just one one sentence. All the fine. secrets are coming out tonight. I know, I, I know. Because <laughs> um, I just went, I'm no good at these. I, Ian Fleming writes good first lines. I'll nick one of his. It'll be fine. Nobody will ever know. Well, now I talk about knows. it in the podcast in 15 <laughs> years' time, and then I'll be found out. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so, and... And when I was working on City of Vengeance and I was, I was trying to come up with the first line, trying to come up with the first line, what was going to be it? I needed to do all these things, like you said. And then I was, so I teach a creative writing MA at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. Um, and I was leaving work one day and I remember I walked across the courtyard and I was heading back to my car and I just, and then the sentence that's in the book came to me as I was crossing, as I was crossing the courtyard and thinking to that. 
comma, da, da, da. <laughs> uh, but sometimes it was necessary because I thought, yes, because uh, it's no secret to say the first line is also the last line of the book. And therefore, it has this circularity mm-hmm. to it. And the meaning of it in the last, uh, as the last sentence of the book, is quite different to what you think it's going to be at the beginning of the book. So Very it takes clever. you one direction, it ends in another place, and you're like, oh. <laughs> uh, so when I thought of the first line, I thought, and because I knew how it was going to end, I thought, oh, and that would be a great last line. <laughs> <laughs> Hands wrapped together, gleeful uh, appreciation of my own genius, um, honestly. And you know um, what I love, though? I love Bishop. that when you're at the keyboard, these ideas don't come to you. But when you're walking across the street, that's when they come to you. I love that. And you're like, where is yeah. the paper? Where's my phone? How do I write this down? Oh, honestly, yeah. I mean, I found I write upstairs, but if I need to have... Uh, when I'm trying to have ideas, I have to go downstairs. I, I cannot have ideas in front of a computer. I have to be somewhere else. So I go down and like dining room table or just be like, or just that wandering and desperately yeah. put stuff into phone or. It's interesting. It's almost time. training your brain, isn't it? Or your brain gets used to a certain way. Cause I was speaking to an author the other day and he gets his ideas just driving to the cafe. You know, he can't get the ideas in front of his laptop, gets in the car and even on an eight minute drive, he'll be like, yep, just solved all the problems. So is that interesting how your brain works? Yeah, and also mine's also, uh, if I'm really stuck, I'll just go and have a bath, which I think I stole from Douglas Adams. He was like, oh, yes, if you can't have two good baths a day, you're really not writing. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, so it it is that weird thing. You get into a bath and you're there and, you you know, you can't be looking at your phone because if it falls in the bath, that's the end of the phone. It's true. Um, And then you're just sitting there cleansed and then somehow (laughs) your mind has a chance to just figure things out and just put pieces together. beautiful. I love that. Most of my best ideas have. I have a really bad habit. I love baths too, by the way. And I have a really bad habit. I take a book in there and nine times out of 10, actually, let's make that 10 times out of 10, I drop the book into the bath. <laughs> so, but I still don't learn. I still keep doing it. So anyway, yeah. I just get used yeah, to reading I don't, damn yeah. books. Yeah, I'm I'm too clumsy. I really could not be trusted with a book in the bath. That's that's I never going to end I well. Think I get too relaxed. I'm like, oh, this is lovely, and then my fingers get relaxed, and the it ends up in the bath. But you know. pruning, and then oh well, oh well. I've just gotten used to it now. It's just it's just going to happen. Now I want to know what draws you to crime fiction. We know what draws you to the to the setting and the period of time that you set your book in. What draws you to crime fiction? I love crime fiction too. So what draws you to it? Um, I mean, crime's great for any kind of writing because it gives you a narrative engine. You know, there's like somebody's done something, somebody's going to do something. Can they be stopped or can we figure out who done it? So it gives you automatic structure. So that's it. You you don't have to work hard at structure at a big level because, well, there's a crime and who done it and can we catch them and stop them doing it again, as the case mm-hmm. may be. So that means you've you've got a dramatic question is asked because a crime has occurred, something terrible has happened, and therefore can you find the answer? So you're automatically set up as a writer. Well, you've got the makings in, automatically set up for you. So therefore now you just need to add character and setting and bring it alive on the page and some red herrings and confuse us a bit of hand waving to keep everybody distracted. Um, (laughs) So for me, it it gives you automatic structure. Whereas, you know, I mean, the people I think have got the hardest job as writers are romance writers. I mean, that's incredibly difficult because it's two people. How do you keep them apart? And then how do you make the fact that they get together at the end, which happens in every book, 
a surprise somehow. That's impossible. <laughs> well, I, know, I think it's about the journey, though, writers, right? I think it's about the journey. I mean, romance writers are geniuses. Mm. Crime writers have got it easy by comparison. <laughs> um, but I think you're right. But I think it's about, you know, all the obstacles can... Yeah, you, you're right, though, because you know they're going to get together in the end. Yeah. So no matter how yeah. many obstacles they put in front of you, you've just ruined... You know, yeah, if it's a if it's a proper romance novel, they get together at the end. If it's you know, romantic drama, then no, one of them dies, and that's the end of that. Yeah, and then they right. weep a bit. That's you know, right. it's the Notebook, but um, <laughs> or yeah. Romeo and Juliet, they both die. And Romeo and Juliet. Well, then they both die, but yeah, then that's crime. Um, <laughs> a lot of stabbing and poison. You know, there is a lot of stabbing. Yeah, I'd probably take that back. That's not actually a romantic novel. <laughs> Romantic First drama, act, tragedy. Maybe. If they both die, it's tragedy. If one of them dies, it's drama. If they both live, it's comedy. Um, oh, or romance. That. Just simplified it so much for me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, so whenever I, like I spend a lot of time writing other things, not writing crime. Um, so I wrote like medical dramas for BBC TV and I was writing radio plays and comics and graphic novels and all these other things. And I was always putting crime into my stories and slipping crime in and just going, I really want to be writing Hill Street Blues. Um, <laughs> and so I wrote like two Warhammer novels, which are like role playing fantasy for anybody who doesn't know Warhammer from Games Workshop. Uh, and I wrote two of those. And the first one really was just Hill Street Blues with the occasional elf wandering past in the background. <laughs> and I kept describing them in interviews as police procedurals. And my publisher was like, stop calling them that. It's Warhammer, <laughs> damn you. Warhammer. That's funny. So and when I wrote the second one, they um, said, you've got to put more Warhammer in your Warhammer. I like, oh, <laughs> think you need to write a crimey romance. Yeah, well, well, well uh, Cesare Aldo uh, uh, finds somebody he finds uh, quite comely, it has to be said in, in this book, which was uh, <laughs> slightly unexpected. He just turns <laughs> up and the doctor reaches out the bloody hand and then offers to pretend to stab him and Aldo suddenly looking at the shoulders and going in the nice warm hazel eyes and going, hmm, I like the cut of your jib, and suddenly we're off to the races. So you can meet not- anyone anywhere. <laughs> Well, yeah, and it was not in the plan for the book, you know. And really? This is the joy, I right? love that. You have your plan, you have your superstructure, but mm. then characters turn up and go, hello, I'd I'm like to be this. in more of the book. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love how you can be surprised when they surprise oh. you and they get their, they take on their own, you know, lives and personalities. I find that amazing. Now, I have loved this chat a lot, um, but I always ask this last question to all my guests who come onto the podcast why do you write? Oh, well, uh, because I'm a crime writer, it is far better on the page than, <laughs> than being expressed in other parts of my life is, is thing number one. Uh, Good reason. Uh, Good reason. You know, I, if I've got somebody that I'm really hating right now, then I can kill them with impunity. They can be, they can suffer the most gruesome death possible. And yet the real person gets to live on to my frustration. Um, so uh, yeah, that's one thing. Uh, and also just writing is a compulsion. Um, and when I'm not writing, I get very itchy and antsy and eventually gets to a point where if I'm not writing and I'm not being sufficiently mentally occupied by my work, otherwise then my dreams get, way too vivid and then it's like okay I need to start writing because my brain is going to torture me in the night if I don't so it's it's a survival mechanism 
I've got stories they've got to get out. Otherwise, <laughs> the consequences. <laughs> I love it. I've asked that question probably about 250 times and I've never gotten that one. So I'm very happy about that. <laughs> oh, well, cool. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Demi Bishop, that was just a joy to speak to you about all your research. And I knew it would be because when you read a book like this, you know that you have put so much research into it and you know that you're going to have lots of interesting stories and, you know, you, you know that you're going to know a lot about that time period and that setting. So that was a fascinating chat. And I thank you so much. It was a fascinating book and something that I hadn't really read before. I read a lot of crime, but once you said it where you said it in the time period and the place, you think I really haven't read something like that before. So thank you for that. I look forward to the next one, which is going to be a little bit more confined and a little bit of a different setting. So I'll be very interested to see how, you know, you do all the intrigue and suspense in that confined uh, space. And um, I look very much forward to it. But thank you for this candid, wonderful chat this evening. And thank you for also contributing to the Words and Nerds blog, also talking about uh, research as well. So that will be um, on the website shortly. Cool. Well, I, my pleasure, please. Uh, anytime. Thank you. Well, we'll catch up for the second one then. Oh, yes, that, absolutely. <laughs> yes, you, you, you need to know what happens next. I because do. I consequences... need to know all about the convents as well. Fascinating. Oh, well, there's a lot of that, yes. <laughs> Well, thank you and enjoy your day. You too.